Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast. Each episode, I have poignant conversations with women who fly, run, surf, ski, climb, or otherwise soar, and possess a passion for life that is infectious. These are honest and insightful conversations about dreams and reinvention, often in the face of uncertainty, doubt, or other impediments. We talk about busting paradigms, grit, working hard, and playing hard, all while building a community around the empowering metaphor of flight. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, mother, skier, list maker, and apparently podcaster. I believe that when we share our stories, own our fears, and dismantle our perceived limitations, the possibilities are boundless. Whether you're pursuing your passion or simply love the idea of possibility and wonder, this podcast is for you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. In the 1920s, when civil aviation was organizing itself and aviators were setting benchmark upon benchmark, air racers were a popular spectator sport. The all-women's air derby, as it was known officially, drew crowds to see and meet record setters, nonconformists, and all bands in between. Today, women comprise about 6% of pilots in the United States. So what happens when these first female pilots, gutsy and colorful adventurers, who flew in air circuses, set altitude and speed records, and fought for the right to become part of the male-dominated world of aviation, have granddaughters. My guest today is Melissa Dawn Burns, granddaughter to a pioneering woman in aviation who normalized a hangar in place of a garage and flying upside down. Melissa is a professional aerobatic pilot, display skydiver, and base jumper, climber, ultra runner, and mom. At 22 years old, Melissa became the youngest female member of the United States Unlimited Aerobatic Team in history, just five years after learning to fly. Melissa was named the fastest woman in the world at the World Championship Wingsuit Base Jumping Race in Norway in 2015 and has been participating in numerous skydiving world records. She expresses the spirit of flight by working hard and playing hard. And although there are few things it seems Melissa can't achieve by setting goals, she has had her share of defeats, impediments, and swings inevitable to a life that is lived by flying loops, performing stunts, following instincts, being on a show circuit away from home for months, processing loss, mitigating risk, preparing for unknown outcomes, and simply putting yourself fully on the line. We talk about her journey, burnout, recovery, setting goals, and starting a family. Melissa talks about the changes in her life as a mom, and this is not a message of resignation. Imagine parenting with the skills of a stunt pilot. This conversation is about when love and life and flying merge. For Melissa, having children is a new role where living in a space of wonder and getting to re-experience the world through their fresh eyes is one of the biggest rewards. One more thing, we have all heard that in order to be a good athlete, you shouldn't limit yourself to one sport all year round. Diversification improves performance. However, it's so easy to be immersed in only one sport or activity. How do you go about taking your game to another level? Take notes from Melissa. She is one of the most diversified athletes in four dimensions that I know. And she's the granddaughter to a pioneering woman who represented a life both brave and diverse. Work hard, play hard, mom hard. 
with Melissa Dawn Burns. Enjoy this conversation. And if it sparks something for you, please share and subscribe. It really helps me amplify these voices and the stories within. Today, my guest is Melissa Dawn Burns. Welcome. I'm so thrilled to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can you just give us a snapshot of the present, of here and now, where you are, and what's up? Sure, absolutely. So here and now, um, I'm currently in Florida, as far as where I'm at. I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old and a wonderful husband, and air shows with the current state of COVID aren't really going on, so my focus is on training for the U.S. team. We're running a little rides business with the WACO and really just taking care of my kids. Being, being mom is number one right now. I love it. Let's talk about you and your growing up. You learned to fly from your grandmother and your grandfather, and that she was a really early influence for you. Can you talk to us about how you started flying? Yes, I would love to. My grandma's name was Mary Lou Waite. My grandpa is Leo Jansen. So Leo actually lives down here in Florida. My grandma has since passed, but she was a huge influence to me growing up. My grandma had six daughters. Uh, has over 20 grandkids, and she lived on an airport in Butler, Pennsylvania. Going to grandma's house was going to the airport. I'd go out into the hangar. I always, I loved the smell. I always wanted to sit in the airplanes. She had a little 150 air bath that she got for her 50th birthday that she flight instructed in, and she had a little J3 cub. And if you were really, really lucky, then she might say, hey, you want to go up for a flight? Um, I have some early memories with flying with grandma that have really, you know, they just really stuck with me. And uh, one was actually with her doing some ground instruction. And I was really young. She said, who in here knows how to fly? And I raised my hand and they all laughed at me and I was super embarrassed. But I thought, well, I fly with grandma. I, so, of course, I know how to fly. And, uh, you know, she'd do things like open the window and let me try to catch clouds with my hands and uh, you know, prop me up on the phone book so I could see outside. So yeah, grandma was just very inspirational and she was extremely passionate about aviation. She was a real pioneer in her day, wasn't she? She was a pioneer. You know, my grandma competed in the Latter-day Powder Puff Air Races uh, and the stories were great. You know, these ladies raced all over the world with their airplanes. Uh, she loves to tell the story. You know, I went to college at Embry-Riddle out in Prescott, Arizona. And she said that uh, when they landed there during the race, they were all in the FBO. If there really even was an FBO, they had to, you know, they were just like sleeping on the couches and the tabletops overnighting there and, uh, you know, just doing whatever they had to do to spend the night and get going the next day. And I just think that those ladies had such a, a unique experience in time getting to be a part of those races. So your grandmother was a huge influence and she was a role model for flying. But and what were you like as a child? I was actually a really shy kid. I was really comfortable in, you know, my family and my peer groups. I went to small schools. I was comfortable in my sports, but I was always pretty nervous in crowds and around new people. So for me, I, I, that's why I really dove into my sports, I think. Hmm. As a kid, you were really into sports. I was, yeah. I, you know, I enjoyed everything. I was like basketball, track, cross country, soccer. I competed in climbing. It just, for me, that was where my peer groups were. And I absolutely loved it. So then how did you get into flying? I got into flying really through the introduction of my grandma to aviation, you know, being around, being around it. I loved it. And uh, when it came time to choose a college, I tried to think about what I was really interested in. And really, I just wanted to go climb. <laughs> so like, I just want to take my Jeep and 
go drive around all the fun climbing spots and basically just be a dirt bag and do that. But that, you know, wasn't really on the table for options. It was really important to my grandma and family that I went to college. So I started looking in good climbing areas. I looked in Colorado and my mom and dad said, no, you are not going to Colorado. You will never go to class. So I started looking in Arizona and I found Embry-Riddle. It's an aviation university. I thought, hey, I love aviation. And, you know, you think back to whenever I was looking, you know, like 2000, 2001, and I printed out the weather reports and the information (laughs) for the different colleges I was interested in. I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Arizona in Prescott had exactly the same amount of sunny days as we had cloudy days. And the school had a bouldering club, which is a type of climbing. And it was a no-brainer. It was the only school I applied to. And I decided to go and become a professional pilot. I think that's an underrated qualification for our decision-making, the the weather, right? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. I, I was like, if I can climb, if there's good weather, I can do something that I like. And I loved flying. I loved being around aviation. Then I was into it. So my grandma had lost her medical by the time I was ready to learn how to fly. But my grandpa, Leo Janssen's, he was a retired Air Force test pilot, great instructor. And I asked them, hey, I want to learn how to fly. And they said, you know what? You show us your acceptance letter to Embry-Riddle and you can learn how to fly. And they also prerequisite that I had to have my driver's license. So got my driver's license, got my acceptance letter, early acceptance to Embry-Riddle, took that to them. And instead of going on a senior trip, I went and stayed at grandma and grandpa's house, uh, spent a couple months and learned how to fly. Huh. So they really were influences on you as far as discipline was concerned as well, probably. Was that an important counterpoint to your passion-driven intuition? Yes. I think that if my grandma wasn't like, you need to go to college, I probably would have just gone and driven around in my Jeep climbing, which would have been cool. I mean, I'm a a skydiver too. Like It would have totally suited my lifestyle, but I now get the benefit of having my college degree, multiple degrees now, and having the influence of aviation. And that's a side of my life I may never have gotten into if it wasn't for my grandparents. So during your late teens and early 20s, and you started to fly, but by 22, you became the youngest female to ever make the U.S. Unlimited Aerobatic Team. So take us through that, what, eight years, or sorry, four years. Take us through that four years. It was quick. Hey, I was, okay, so again, I liked climbing. I, I had my climbing partner. One of them in high school was a skydiver. So I went for a tandem when I turned 18. So, you know, I kind of have the aviation, climbing, skydiving connection. And when I was at college, starting to go through the degrees, you know, these part 141 schools, it's very strict. It's very stringent. You're going through stages. You're, you know, you're training hard. And I just remember thinking, oh, I don't want to lose my passion for aviation because this part of it is not all that fun. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And I had been to Oshkosh. My grandpa had taken me there and I just loved the exposure to the aerobatics. I had done some aerobatics with my grandma in the 150. When I was learning with Leo, I actually said, hey, can I, that's my grandpa. I said, hey, can I do some aerobatics? And I remember grandma sitting in her chair and saying, yep, just climb up high. And if you get scared, pull back the power and let go. <laughs> and she was right. So I I did my first solo aerobatics in our Cessna 150 aerobat and until I went to an air show, I thought that was the world of aerobatics. And then, you know, Oshkosh just blew my mind. So when I was at college going through these very, you know, stringent training programs, I started looking around to do some more training. I was interested in bush flying. Uh, my dream was to go and be 
some sort of a mission-based bush pilot. I loved that idea of using aviation to help people. I was a, you know, I graduated high school the year of 9-11. So the idea of going airlines wasn't even in my realm of possibilities. So I found a guy in Isatabria and he started doing training with me, doing bush flying, uh, off airport landing sort of stuff. Uh, his name was Rolf Engelhart. He's an awesome guy, awesome pilot. And he did a little bit more aerobatics with me. So I just kept getting this exposure to aerobatics. To fly aerobatics, you have to wear a parachute. I thought, what a great reason for me to have to go do more skydiving. I can expand on my flying. I'll be a safer pilot if I learn more aerobatics. I can get more into skydiving. And you kind of see where this is going. <laughs> yeah, completely. Yeah. So I found myself in Eloy. Uh, that was kind of my first home drop zone and started jumping probably more than going to class. And I found a guy who was giving instruction in a pits. It was a two-seat pits uh, down out of near the Phoenix area in Arizona. His It was Major General Hank Canterbury. Uh, he was such a cool guy. He was like one of the early Thunderbird pilots. His son was a Thunderbird pilot. Actually, at that time, his son was an active Thunderbird pilot. So they're the only father-son duo team. So what an instructor. And he started doing training with me in the pits. Continue that on. And I saw some plaques on his wall. And, you know, competitive me goes, ooh, you can compete in aerobatics. And just like that, you know, doors just kept opening to me and I just kept following it. And next thing I knew, I was, you know, starting to compete and do well and moved up quickly and got involved in a program that helped to basically mentor young up-and-coming aerobatic pilots to learn the airshow industry side of things. And I got a pits, sold the pits, got an edge. Someone told me, oh, you should start out in advance, which is one of the aerobatic categories. And I went through an advanced sequence and laughed. I said, this airplane's not made for advanced. It wasn't even qualified for advanced at the time. I wouldn't have been able to compete at the world level in that airplane at the advanced level. So I said, no, forget it. I, it's, you know, it's my first year with this airplane, but I'm flying unlimited. I told my coaches, we worked hard. And that summer I went to nationals and skipped right up to unlimited. And I placed in the top 10 and made the U.S. team at 22 years old. So what does unlimited mean in that context? The competition, I'll give you a little layout of competition aerobatics. It's a lot like competition ice skating. It, it has compulsory figures that we fly. And this is not the super exciting side of it. You know, it's not tumbling, blowing smoke, flying surface level. Um, you start at a base level with very base maneuvers and flying higher. So, you know, you might be flying up at 1,500 feet in the lower level categories. And as you move from primary, sportsman, intermediate, advanced, and eventually to unlimited, we work our way down to, it's like 100 meters is the base of the box for the unlimited level. And now we have opened up to the entire category of possibilities of maneuvers from our maneuvers catalog, essentially. Mm -hmm. So unlimited is the top world level. You can compete world level in advanced and in unlimited. Every other year we rotate which level of competition has their world championships. Okay, wow. So you're a very diversified flyer. <laughs> You've touched on that already a little bit. But tell us about the multiple prongs of your flying. In addition to being an aerobatic pilot, you've done stunt work. You've taken on highly complex maneuvers for films. You won the wingsuit base race to become the women's world champion in Voss, Norway at Extreme Sports Week in 2015. And you took part in a 164-way vertical world record that same year. You've participated in a lot of different ways of 
flying and humans aren't really built to fly, right? So <laughs> I guess the, the question is here. Yeah, I mean, we don't have wings. We can't glide. We aren't supposed to free fall. So when we decide to skydive or any of those modalities, making that choice, what goes down for you? Tell me what, what flying does to you. Sure. So, I mean, flying for me, not to be cliche, but it just, it just sets me totally free. You know, I love the freedom of flight. I have found forms of flight, whether it's flying my body or flying an airplane and specific airplanes too, you know, bush flying and, and aerobatic flight. Like these are the ones that really connect with me because I, I feel like I become one with that airplane, just like when I'm flying my body base jumping or skydiving. Again, I'm flying my body. It, it just, I find that everything else around me just kind of goes away and I can focus in and just be so present in the moment when I'm doing the forms of flight that I love. And can you give us a little cheat sheet on the definitions of the different types that we've talked about? I would love to give you a cheat sheet. So let's see, we have base jumping, which is jumping from buildings, antennas, spans like bridges or earth. So for instance, jumping from a cliff, uh, it's jumping, flying your body with a parachute. Often uh, nowadays you see people, a lot of the videos of people flying wingsuits. Uh, when we started flying wingsuits, jumping them off of objects, the idea was to get away from the object and have a safer opening so that you have less chance of striking the object under parachute once you have opened. And as the technology has gotten better and better, I mean, you, you watch people, they're practically slaloming trees like they're skiing. So it's, it's really incredible where the technology has gone. And then, of course, we have skydiving. I do uh, free flying. So when you see, I don't do the real, like the belly to earth flying that you see. I do more of the head down where you see someone like they're diving head to earth, holding hands with their friends. And that, that for instance, are the, the world records that I like to take part in when I qualify. And then uh, let's see, uh, bush flying, I mentioned, you know, that's anytime you're flying. And this, you know, this is a relative term. People will use it in different ways. But I've found that the best definition is really off airport to off airport. And that's, you've done that mostly in Alaska? I've done that mostly in Alaska and Africa. And how have the different modalities challenged you? One of the beautiful things about aviation, whether it's, again, flying airplanes, skydiving, base jumping, you, I call them their lifetime activities. There are so many different ways that you can take them and different specialties that you can focus on. I, you spend your entire life pursuing these sports and you will never become a master of all of it. There will always be another challenge. When you take a break, you have to reset. You have to have your path to currency. Uh, you are always able to be in training. There, you know, there's sports that really truly are lifetime activities that can challenge you and impassion you forever. And take us through that period of time when, you, you know, around 2015, when you were just full throttle, all out there traveling like crazy. I don't even know how many air shows a year you did. Tell us what that lifestyle was like for you and the, maybe the pros and cons. Sure. Yeah. 2015 was, uh, was an interesting one. <laughs> I was, I think when I got home to my house, my husband at the time, I looked around and I was like, wow, I've, I don't think I'd been home in nearly 11 months. And he just said, yeah, it's been a long time. It's a long time on the road. I I definitely, you know, you get burnout after a season like that. I, I tend to go every other season 
really intense, knowing that the following season is going to be a little more relaxed. Mm-hmm. The years that I have the world championships, they're often overseas. So those tend to be my really intense years. I am focused on booking air shows wherever I need to, to support, uh, support me being at the world championships. I have to factor in all of my training with the team. I have to factor in, of course, the travel between, and then I want to, and then it just happens to be that year. We also had, you know, world records for skydiving going on and I had competitions for base jumping going on. Um, for instance, in, in Voss, when we had the wingsuit race there, it was a qualifier for us to be able to go to the wingsuit world league in China. So I called, contacted the event extreme sports week. I said, Hey, do you guys want to have an air show worked with the local authorities? My airplane was shipping over to Europe for the world championships. It was meant to arrive in Germany on a fast ship, but as shipping goes, it got diverted all over the place. It wasn't going to arrive on time. I was meant to hike the John Muir trail. I had to cancel that find an airplane to fly in Norway, found that these guys were awesome. They brought their extra, let me use it, had all the waivers and everything in place, flew the air show so that I could, it would pay me to be there so that I could compete in the wingsuit race. And then I was able to be in Europe with my airplane to compete for the world championships in aerobatics. So it's all of these, these factors that, you know, I, I basically take my schedule at the beginning of the year and see what fits where, take a deep breath and go, I have to be safe. I have to survive this. I have to pay, you know, financially survive this. And I have to make it to the end of the year. And then I can take a break for like a month. And that was 2015. Now with children, your approach must be really different. Oh, definitely. And and it was tough because 2015, I also we also had some, you know, we had some big losses, like loss of friends in the sports, loss of friends in aerobatics. So there was also this really strong emotional toll that it took that that you have to, it's hard because you have to put it aside. I remember getting phone calls about losing good friends and going, I can't even process this right now. I have to process this later. Being at an event and losing a friend. And then, you know, if you're overseas, you end up kind of being really involved in the, in the post process there, which is, which is also really hard because then you're dealing with your own emotions and the families and everything. So mm-hmm. yeah, I actually, you know, the next year uh, is when my husband at the time and I got divorced. So if that, if that kind of goes to show how it really takes, it, it causes a lot of stress. You get so much amazing opportunity. You get to do so many cool things. You know, there's balance and there's no balance in that lifestyle. I knew that when I chose to have kids, when I met my, my husband, Trent, and we decided to start a family, we knew that there were going to be major sacrifices to that side of our lives, and we were okay with that. It was it was time. It was time. Let me just peel back a second to processing loss. And I get it, what you said. You know, you you have a task at hand that you need to maintain your focus on. However, gosh, putting things aside is different than processing. And then sometimes the processing comes back with a vengeance once you've put it aside. And at some point you have to process it, right? And and then make the decision to come back and do this thing and embrace the risk and mitigate it. But how do you process it? I guess is the question. I'd say, you know, early on the the first friends I lost to the sports was a little bit of a figuring out process. I, you know, it would take a break, would wonder if I needed to step away and make sure that I wasn't, you know, that I was we go through our I'm safe acronym in aviation, right? It applies to all all risk. Anytime you're in 
any situation that involves risk, you should really be doing an I'm safe sort of a flow, a checklist. And big part of that is emotional. Am I truly emotionally in a good place to be making decisions and to be taking risk? And especially if anyone else's lives are on the line. And we should always err on the caution there, on the side of caution. But I found that I'd usually just sort of take a breath. I'd back off all my all my maneuvers, all my limits. I remember after losing one of my good friends in the same type of airplane I fly, I had to go out for an evaluation. And one of my friends wanted to watch. And she's like, oh, I, I love watching you fly because you're, you know, you fly like one of the dudes. It's not like watching a chick fly. And in my mind, I'm like, yeah, but I had just lost a good friend and I totally backed off on everything. You know, I'm like, I'm not pushing it. I'm put, I'm adding numbers to the top side of my maneuvers. I'm doing everything more conservative and always taking away, not adding to. So I'd say initially, I just really find that I'm going to be more conservative when something happens. If I'm at a show and there's a loss of life, you know, we've been asked at times, can you guys go and fly? I always say no. I said, you know, that's not the same answer for everyone, but for me, it's not the time. It's not the place to make that decision. It's time to take a breath and let everybody process what's just happened. Same with base jumping. You know, I'm like, no, I'd rather go and focus on safety and focus on everyone's emotional being. And, and I can put my energy there rather than saying, no, I just want to go, you know, get some more jumps in and forget about this for right now. So after the fact, I talk to friends, you know, we're big on talking to each other. And who knows, maybe we're just going to all throw a big party in remembrance of of that person and just cry and, and tell stories and laugh and, uh, you know, more of, more of the idea of a wake than a funeral. I, I can't stand the idea of a funeral and just celebrate that person. And then another way I process is really to try to learn from it. I find that I get pretty focused on the aftermath of whatever type of accident it was. And it's really important to me to figure out what happened, why it happened, and what can we learn from it to try to avoid something like that happening again in the future and, you know, make sure that that loss of life didn't just didn't happen with us not even trying to take some positive change from it. Yeah, I understand everything you just said. I think there's a celebration that you want to have in some way doing justice to the life that was led, that was done with such passion. I mean, if they're, someone is losing their life doing one of these sports, they're clearly living by passion, which is such a admirable way to to live life. So yeah, taking that out. One of my pet peeves, and I, I, I almost don't want to say this because so many people say this and it's a way I think to to help them process losses. But when someone says, oh, well, they died doing what they love. And I just think, well, they didn't, they'd much rather still be here to keep doing it. But at the same time, I, I get it because they were living their life passionately and doing what they love. And that's so true. But in my mind, I'm like, well, I want to die old in my bed in my sleep. I don't want to die doing what I love, but I, we all understand that we're taking on risk and that absolutely is a possibility. We have to be the best risk mitigators that we could be. Right. And and you still, you keep, you keep coming back. So you double down on the risk mitigation at the same time that you really make smart choices. Yes. I, I believe that for that preparation is so, so key and being careful walking that line of currency versus complacency. You know, early in the season, everyone's being more cautious, but later in the season, when you're feeling super current, that's when you can easily cross that line of complacency. Or, you know, sometimes it's like, think about jumping off of a cliff into the water with your friends. If you go by yourself, it's scary. If your buddy jumps next to you, you get this little 
extra courage. Are you actually safer because they're there? No, it's probably actually a little riskier, but you know, we have, this is just how our brain works. And I think we have to really double check ourselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think worth emphasizing that statistically, when we are, when we do something more, we have more confidence that we can do it safely, even if we're not necessarily more skilled at it, right? So we have to watch out for that behavior. That's right. And and statistically too, the more exposure to risk that you have, the more times you do the same risky activity, the higher your chances are of something going wrong. So it's, uh, you know, something to always keep in mind. So on the um, the spectrum of risk with the different types of flying you do, how do the different activities fall? It's interesting because you'd probably say base jumping is the most dangerous as far as the risk goes, but I have, I've lost more friends to aerobatics. So when I look at the stats of it, the surf, not any aerobatics, I, I encourage any pilot to go and get some unusual attitude and basic aerobatic training. I think that makes everyone a safer pilot. But as far as the surface level high performance flying that we do, it's taking that level of risk and raising it exponentially. And really when it comes down to it, it's about momentum. And we have a lot of momentum when we're flying in these airplanes. I would have to put aerobatics as as the most risky, which might surprise people, surface level aerobatics. And then I would say that base jumping falls in a close second. And uh, actually skydiving, I, I find to be a pretty safe sport. There are tons of redundancies if you keep your gear safe, if you follow the safe practices, if you make good decisions. I believe you can sat out your whole life into old age and be just fine. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the project you did that you have a video of with the stunt, the stunt work as an example of planning a project. Yeah. Oh, no, I would love to. So we have a video. Um, if you Google it, it's just world first with... Andy Lewis and Fitz and Melissa and, you know, just Google that and you'll find it or go to my website and check it out. But what we did, I I love passion projects and this was a non-sponsored thing. It wasn't for any event. It was just three friends getting together and putting together a stunt that we were passionate about. Part of it was to bring together three different, three different sports that will reach three different audiences. So, you know, they come to watch one sport and they're going to get crossover into the others. But then also just to demonstrate, you know, you take three, just creativity, you take three top level athletes from three different sports. We're not doing anything complex. We're all doing something that we do all the time. You know, we can do thousands of times and have no issues, but when we combine them together, it just makes a really spectacular stunt. We wanted to do something that hadn't been done. So we had uh, we had Fitz backflipping on his motorcycle over the top of my airplane as I flew under. And, you know, that's not a first. That's been done over the years. But then we added on Andy on a high line. So we basically erected a high line where he was walking the line and standing in the center of it so that as I flew under, Andy's standing on his high line. And we tried to time it so that Fitz was in the middle of his backflip over the top of me as I flew under. And this is a totally repeatable stunt. You know, it's, you get the one shot that was amazing, but we're out there doing it for 20 minutes over and over and over, just trying to get that timing perfect. How high from the surface are you when you do that stunt? I was really low. Uh, I mean, like I could roll my wheel on the ground. So I wanted to give them as much space as I could 
okay, for an example, if I do my inverted ribbon cuts, I do those at about between 20 and 25 feet. It's probably about 22 feet. And um, I set up ribbons for me initially. I wasn't going through and cutting them inverted, but just to fly through and get the spacing between the ramps. So we set up my ribbon poles and I, I did a bunch of flybys referencing the center of my ribbon to get my side picture. So, you know, everything, it's just like we talk about in any sports, you're building up, you start with the basics and you build up. So we're slowly adding elements and uh, eventually we bring it all together to where everyone feels safe. Everyone feels confident and comfortable. And again, we've worked on really mitigating the risk by preparing, having professionals and making good decisions. If it's too windy, we're not going to go. If someone isn't feeling up to it, we're not going to go. You know, we're going to make sure all of the three factors are working well individually before we combine them together. Mm -hmm. And then we just combine one at a time until we get all three. It's a pretty striking and cool video. So I highly recommend anyone, everyone to go take a look at it. So I don't want to completely gloss over something that we sort of mentioned a lot earlier, 2015 and what that led up to and the pivot that seems like it was destined to happen. And it makes me reflect on how sustainable or not highly, oh gosh, just the sort of extreme sport lifestyle and everything that you had to bring to the table to just pull that off, how sustainable that is. And is it possible to achieve greatly in individual sport and achieve in personal life and the other dimensions in life. And I'm sure you had have had time to reflect on that. Yeah. You know, something my dad always told me as a kid, because I wanted to do every sport and I still did every sport because I'm like, I'm having fun. I want to experience as much as I can. But he always told me that if you ever want to be really great at one of them or have any chance of becoming the best at one of them, you're going to have to pick and choose and you're going to have to focus. And I, I mean, I think he's absolutely right at that. World champions usually have one focus. Mm-hmm. I'm not a world champion. I've gotten third, so it's not bad. I guess I, I won the wingsuit base race, but you know that's a pretty niche sport that we have there. Uh, there's not a whole lot of us that were doing it and competing in it. Now, I feel that with how I would rotate year to year, you know, giving myself a year that was sort of an easier year between those intense years, it made it manageable. I found that that was that was something that I could keep up, but I knew I was, you know, I was getting, I was in my, getting into my thirties and I knew I wanted a family. And I feel like that was the pull that I really started to feel. So I knew I needed a change. I could be doing an opposing inverted ribbon cut with my air show partner, Skip Stewart. And I was thinking, you know, I might be thinking about other things where we all going to grab dinner later. And I just went, you know, this is, I'm not feeling like this is pushing me. I feel like it's not, it's becoming routine. And when something so high risk becomes routine, that's usually a good time to take a break. And for me, it meant some pretty dramatic changes. Mm -hmm. And you know, you have different relationships that are good for different times of your life. And my husband at the time and I clearly were on different projections with that. And I had all of three months of singleness when I met my husband, Trent, at the air show in Elmendorf, Alaska. And I mean, we we knew right away that we wanted to have a family and I was ready to just put the brakes on everything full stop to make that happen for a time. 
true to your nature. So it's, it seems like it wasn't sustainable, but you know, maybe it wasn't meant to be right. Maybe that's just, that's. I think so. I think I, I always knew that I wanted to be a parent. So every time that I stepped up to the edge of a cliff to jump off or got to be, take part in a world record skydive or fly my little single engine airplane over the ocean and jungles and kind of ridiculous things I did with that airplane to go fly these air shows in amazing, beautiful, unique places. I mean, I, I've performed across six continents and I don't know how many countries every single time. I just tried to get as much out of that experience as I could because I knew that I was extremely fortunate and blessed to have those opportunities. And I mean, we all see, look at what we're all dealing with right now in the last year with COVID. I'm, I always knew at any point this could all be taken away or I could just have a big life shift. And I just wanted to make sure that I, I soaked up every bit of it that I could. When I sold my airshow plane, which ironically I've, I've got back now, but the day I sold it, I was like, you know, I'm making this decision and I know it might mean I never fly on limited level aerobatics again. And that's a bummer because I love representing the team and the States and women. And I want to continue to do that, but you know, I don't make those decisions lightly and without knowing the potential long-term consequences of them. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned gender. We haven't talked about that yet, but in your trajectory, how did gender show up in your favor and also maybe against you? Yeah. So I'd say, of course, we're a woman in a man's world, especially in, in the world of aviation. At times, it's given me opportunities where I might not have had them. When I tried to qualify to in the base jumping world, for instance, to go to China as a woman, I got in whenever they got rid of the women's category. I came close, but I didn't qualify to go. So, you know, there are times when we, you know, they, they pretty much need, just because it's a numbers game, to have that that separate women's competition so that we could get a few of us out there. Of course, we'd love to be in the top five, top 10 all the time, but, you know, the numbers, the numbers just work against us still until we have, you know, a higher female ratio. Mm -hmm. But I found that in aviation, it really is a man's world. It's hard because on one hand, they want you to be one of the guys, but then you act like one of the guys and you get in trouble because what I always tell people when I give talks and when I work with my students as women, so you have to remember as a woman, you stand out. One of the best pieces of advice in aviation someone ever gave to my husband was, you know, blend in. Just try not to stand out. Try not to be the outlier because when you stand out, people pay attention and they're going to see everything that you do right and everything that you do wrong. So my biggest lesson that I've learned as a woman in aviation and really in a man's world is that I have to do everything as if eyes are on me and knowing that I'm standing out, whether it's good or whether it's bad. So when it's good, it usually helps me. When it's bad, it hurts me. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's really magnified in the, the, the public lens. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And there's no right or wrong to this next question, but I'm curious how you think about the idea of calling out women in ways that they have their own category or, you know, the first woman, blah, 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 as opposed to just the first, you know, because on one hand, it would be great if you didn't have to signify that it was the first woman doing that. On the other hand, you know, in fields where there is not a lot of female representation, 
it is important in order to get things going in the right direction. I completely understand that people have different perspectives on this, and I and I fully respect that. Um, my perspective is that, yes, of course, it would be great if we weren't in the position that we needed to recognize women in, at, separately from men. But I do believe that I believe that it's a good thing to do. I, I feel that women and young girls need role models. You know, when you have an air show, a lot of the shows I've flown are in countries that have that developing middle class and women that are still very much growing up with examples of women in traditional roles. Now, don't get me wrong. I clean my house and I have my babies, but it doesn't mean that I can't also go and pursue a career and pursue a sport that people might see as being more of a guy's thing. So by having people going, well, we're going to have that token woman performing in our show. Cool. Great. Because you know what? When I've been that woman, I get to talk on the radio. They get to hear my voice. And you know who it is that comes up to me is it's the dads. And they say, thank you for being here and representing women so that my daughter could see, so that she could see a woman in this role doing what you're doing and be inspired. Because we need role models and we need people who will inspire us. Yes, I've looked up to a bunch of different pilots over my career, but the ones who have impacted me the most have been women. I can relate to them. I grew up with a grandma that flew. I thought everyone's grandma flew. It wasn't like, oh, women aren't in aviation. I'm like, what, your grandma doesn't fly? Of course women fly. I I don't hardly know any guys that fly. (laughs) But we just actually, at, at the world level of aerobatics, they've tried to get rid of, they have gotten rid of the women's recognition and the women's world championship on the advanced level. It still exists on the unlimited level. And again, this is a something that people have very different opinions on. But what I looked at, and I took a stand for maintaining the women's world championships because whoever wins the overall competition, the Aresti Cup, wins the Aresti Cup. World champion is world champion, man or woman. It just happens to be that it's a numbers game and it's been a man so far. So they both get the Aresti Cup and the top male in the competition. So We've been left with being the top female, which we then call women's world champion. But we're still competing together. It's just allowing for that extra recognition and those couple of spots on the team that are reserved for the women's team. And without that, I looked it through real carefully and there would be, we go from, you know, the whole six of us that show up to maybe only being three or four of us in the entire world. And we we need women to be represented. Yeah, you can't really budge the budge the needle when you have single numbers like that. Oh, can I tell you one little story? Yeah. I just thought of this, but I, um, because we always talk about, well, we'll see where things go and how things change and things are changing. But whenever I was speaking to one of the WASP pilots, uh, I think we were at Oshkosh at like a luncheon for them. And uh, these women were just incredible what they did. And they were young when they started, you know, they looked at me and they're like, you're not young anymore, honey. Like we were young (laughs) when we were doing what we did. And I said, you know, I, I hope that by the time I have kids, I wasn't a mom yet. And, you know, if I have a daughter, I, I hope that by the time she grows up that, you know, things will be a little more fair, a little more, you know, not not having to, again, not having to have to have that separate influence. But she looked at me and said, we said the same thing. <laughs> so it it takes time. It takes time. Yeah, it takes time. And I think if there's not an on-ramp, is really frustrating. 
It is. And of course, we do have women's clubs. You know, we've got women in aviation. We have the 99s. And I've heard guys say, well, why don't we have our own clubs and our own scholarships? I'm like, well, aviation kind of is your club. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Just go no, to the FBO, right? That's it. No offense to all the guy pilots out there. Much love and respect to all of them. I've got a son too, and I want I want everything in the world for him. I just I am passionate. <laughs> yeah, love you lots, but love you lots, but I can't help but have that passion for women in aviation and women in in these more traditional male dominated industries and sports. Yeah, totally. So being a flying mom, when you added that role of mom to your resume and all the delights and sharing the beauty of this world with your daughter and now your son, who's one and one and a half now, almost. Oh, almost. Isn't that, oh, they, okay, my gosh. kids, a fun fact I have to tell you is they were both born on November 5th, 2017 oh. and 2019. And I'm, I'm one of five. My second brother was born on my birthday, June 22nd, three years apart. So we don't have twins, but apparently it runs in the family to be born on your sibling's birthday. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or at least to conceive, your parents have something going on conceiving the same time of year. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of all about punctuality, but... One or the other, right? <laughs> <laughs> My kids took it to a whole nother level. <laughs> it's a whole nother level, right? So how has this role been different than you expected or imagined it would turn out? Part of me always saw when I had my kids that I'd be, you know, still, I think initially I thought I would still, even when they were super little, like I'd basically give birth and then we'd all hit the road in the motorhome doing air shows together and go into the climbing crag and, and maybe traveling to Europe. I, I didn't really think I'd be base jumping with young kids and I've been pretty true to that, but going to the drop zone and taking turns watching kids. And of course, some of that does happen, but don't kid yourself when you have kids you may as well just hit pause for two years for each of them. And that's just the reality. You are, you know, you're fully in that world and it's relatively such a short time. I really wanted to be there for my kids and soak up every bit of them just being my baby that I could. Do you have people in your life or on the periphery that question what you're doing or give you feedback directly or indirectly about your life choices? And how do you deal with that? I can tell that as I am getting back into training, um, back into jumping, I never stopped any of it. I've stayed on the U.S. team the whole time. I took a break from air shows. I haven't been base jumping, but I still go skydive and fly in the tunnel. And, you know, I just did my recurrency with my cave diving. And I can tell that there are some people, mostly, you know, it's like your parents and or people that are not into the sports I'm into. They were relieved when I wasn't doing any of it or doing very little of it. And I just think that's their care and love and want for me to be safe. They'd rather me, of course, not do any of it. But at the same time, they're fully supportive and see me smiling and happy and know that they know very well that this is who I am. And if our kids have any say in who their parents get to be, I'm like, they wouldn't have picked me if uh, if they wanted me to sit or just sit around the house all day doing laundry and dishes. They want a parent that they're going to have fun with. And you've lived a lot of different places. You've lived abroad and also a lot of different places in the United States. Do you imagine yourself and your family continuing to be mobile or how do you, how do you think that would change and how has, why was it important to you or what impact, did, what positive impact did it have? You know, there's the side of it where when I'm getting back into it, the people who, um, you know, how, how they view 
me as a parent doing the sports that I do. But I also had the professional side of things where the people who saw me take a break in their minds, I think they have a hard time accepting, you know, once they saw Melissa's a mom, you know, you lose your sponsors. Um, it becomes, you know, you lose your work, you lose, there's not like this loving, warming, super supportive, oh, we're all going to back you as you make this shift and we'll be here when you come back. It's been a big reset for me, even with things like, I mean, like with renewing your waivers and just getting, getting back into things, even though I've stayed on the team, isn't that they're not being supportive. I think that it's really something that they haven't been exposed to much. I'm one of the only moms doing what I do. And because of that, they don't know, they're always going to choose what's the safest path forward. So I find that part of my job getting back into things is to show, look, let this is what I do professionally. I know how to show currency and show that I'm not complacent and show that I'm prepared and show that I haven't forgotten. I flew my edge the other day and flew the unlimited routine this year. And it, I'm like, oh, that was easy. That was fun. You know, take a few negative flicks out and it's good to go. It's not like us as women professionals become moms and change and forget who we are and what we do. That experience is all still there. And I just feel like that's a really important message to get out there just to help with the understanding on the other side of things whenever we take a break and when we get back into it. Yeah, I just wanted to mention that. Oh gosh, I feel like that's a really, really good point. And I'm really glad you mentioned it because I feel like there is a tendency to sign women off once you have children and to pave the way for, it's going to be hard for you clearly, but you know, if you can start to pave the way in this industry for showing that yes, you can do extreme sports, you can be an aerobatic pilot, and still compete and have a family life and have kids. I mean, and be female. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm writing a book at the same time. <laughs> I have nothing else if not extremely perseverant, but I am also, I mean, if I am like OCD about anything, it is preparation, preparation, preparation. So if anyone doesn't know that about me or says otherwise, they don't know me. Yeah. So it's just dismantling, a lot of dismantling of some assumptions. Absolutely. And just acceptance that, you know, different people will choose different things. And some women may not come back and that's great too. And it's just, it's accepting. That's it. You get to choose and you get to choose what's right for you right now and what's right for your family. You lived abroad and you've lived a lot of places in the United States. I'm wondering how that lifestyle was important to you. And if you imagine rejoining that now that you have children and it's a little more complicated or that is something that you will revisit once they're out of the nest. Yes, I believe that traveling has been a big part of my life always. But growing up, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Again, one of five kids. We grew up exploring the United States, right? We drove around in our motorhome. We went out west and dredged for gold and, and climbed and hiked and had a great time seeing our country. And when I had the chance to start traveling internationally, my first exposure internationally was just, you know, going on a middle school trip to Canada, all the way from Pittsburgh to Toronto. I think that's the story for a lot of American kids. And then I had the chance, my friend's, my friend Lauren's dad was an airline pilot at, for US Airways. And she got to bring a couple of friends. She brought three of us with her to go to London when we were in high school. And I mean, that just 
blew my mind. I, seeing the castles, hiking around, hearing the accents, just here you are just in another English speaking nation, but it was, you know, it was an amazing cultural blast for me. And then, you know, fast forward and I was living out of the country more than in with my career. And I mean, I was married to an Australian. Actually, my husband now is Australian as well. He was born there and I went all the way to Alaska to meet another Australian. <laughs> oh, life is strange. Life is strange. Um, you wouldn't know it if you talked to him, though. It's, you know, anyway, we have family abroad still, which is wonderful. And I just feel that the more time that we can spend broadening our own worldviews, traveling, seeing other cultures, meeting people. Um, you know, as a kid, we went on missions trips to Mexico. That was some exposure I got. It was really the first time I'd seen people that weren't living in a first world country so privileged as we are to be in the situations that we're in, really to understand how incredibly fortunate we are but to have running water, to have food, to have our health, to feel safe every single day. I think that I really had a craving for more of that exposure. You know, I, I wanted to start working. That's where I, I got the chance to go work out in Ghana and West Africa and make some extremely good friends there. And go and volunteer for a few months each year. Me and my ex-husband both did that together. He filmed a documentary called The Calling. It was great on this operation. And it was women teaching women, women to fly, women to just build a safety culture and confidence and be exposed to things they wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. Um, it was called Medicine on the Move. And, you know, some of these were, these were some of the best experiences that I've had in my life and that had the most impact on my perspective of things. You know, nationalism is is a pretty scary thing. And I think that the more everyone can talk to people that don't see things the way that they see them, talk to people that have lived in places they haven't lived, the more that we get to know and understand each other all over the world, the more we understand and I think the better decisions that we make as a whole. And how do you get to a place where you use your sport? and sort of become the person that intersects sport and activism for women and, and some of these other issues? Sure. So, so for me, especially having wanting, I wanted to be a missionary pilot. You know, I wanted to be out there helping to fly doctors or fly supplies. I, the guy that did my initial bush flying was an inventor. He made water filters that he would then fly into places that needed relief and needed clean water after, you know, all these hurricanes and natural disasters. And for me to go from that to being a professional aerobatic pilot and extreme sports athlete was, it made me feel very selfish, but I thought, how can I take this platform? These are the opportunities that opened up to me. So there, that must be happening for a reason. And I try to use that exposure, always talking on the radio. So they hear a female's voice, always answering questions. When people ask, I got an email, how I got involved with medicine on the move in West Africa. They sent me an email and it just said, inspiration to Africa. They, the kids watched one of, my, one of my YouTube videos and I said, can I come visit? How can I be involved? And, you know, I just, I'm big on saying yes to opportunities and just trying to use what I do in whatever way I can, just to be a positive inspiration. And I don't always do the right things and make the right decisions. None of us are perfect, certainly not me, but I, I really do try to use what I do to, uh, you know, to have a positive influence where I can. If I believe in something, I speak up about it. If I see injustice, I speak up about it. It has not always gone well for me when I do. I don't have that much of a platform, but <laughs> I, I'll always stick to my values and I will always speak the truth. And I think that's kind of the best thing I can do. 
A lot of what you do requires a lot of fitness, mental and physical. How do you maintain that fitness? Fitness has been a huge part of my life and my sports. And as I got into more of the parachuting activities and the aerobatics, it's tough on your neck. So I found that the more endurance I could build, don't let anyone fool you. All these aerobatic pilots that'll tell you eating cheeseburgers and being a little overweight actually helps you pull G's. That's not true. Of course, going for a 20 mile run right before you go fly is not going to help your G tolerance. But I'll tell you what, I wouldn't have hopped in my edge the other day and flown straight through an unlimited routine right off the bat if I wasn't an endurance athlete. And to be able to maintain your focus, I mean, the mental side of these games is one of the toughest. The Russian pilots, you know, whenever they didn't have access to their planes, they would just chair rehearse, right? Just flying through mentally. They, they sometimes only had their planes for very short periods of training and they'd still show up and kick everyone's butts. So there's that, that mental training that you have to do. And for me, I find uh, running is what I can do everywhere. So I've gotten into the ultra running. I love to run. I like ultra running because it puts me on trails, not because I'm just like, oh, I love running forever. But I like running <laughs> on those surfaces. I like the culture. I love the people. I love the places. It lets me go explore. And it's something I can do when I travel. All I need are my running shoes and yoga. Um, I should be better. Yoga and meditation are two things that I absolutely need for my own mental health, for my own focus, and for, I mean, really for my own physical health too. The yoga has that side of it. And those are things I do and should do more. Yes. <laughs> the call to yoga to ground us. Yes. <laughs> I, I hear I hear you clearly. But about the mental wellness bit, I think it is important to to really highlight that and I know that we've talked before about a quote from Patty Wagstaff where she says that she feels like airshow pilots, probably all of them have ADD or ADHD. I know that you can relate to that. And I just wonder, you know, when we talk about neurodivergence and the actual gifts of different ways that we're wired, how that has shown up for you and different stages of your life, maybe. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, as pilots, we really, we've got to be careful about what we say, what we do and how you get labeled with different things. And if someone's like, oh yeah, that pilot's got ADD, like, oh, they're going to have to go on medicine and they're going to get, no, I think truly that quote was hilarious. And I loved it because yeah, it does seem like all aerobatic pilots and a lot of extreme sports athletes have ADD, but what is it? We are really good at focusing and being in the moment and quieting everything else around us. I think that that's something that is a trait that not everyone has. And maybe if you're more geared towards it, you're going to be maybe a little more natural at being able to keep your focus and not, you know, not get afraid, not get distracted and to be able to be fully present in the task you're doing. On the other side, I am a terrible multitasker. If there's a bunch of stuff cluttered, I'm going to get totally distracted. I, I, I need to be able to have the right environment and to be focused. I found people say, you know, they meet you in person and then they see you in your zone. They see you getting in the airplane or stepping up to a cliff and they, they go, wow, you're like a different person. And of course, you're still the same person, but they are see, they're getting a chance to see you in that moment. And I feel like if you talk to different athletes and people in different professions that you'll hear that a lot, you know, getting in the zone, it's like that time slows down. You can hyper-focus and that is something that 
maybe we develop over all the years of training and being in that moment. But it's something that I would love to talk to someone who's into the, you know, the brain chemistry and the neuroscience side of it and see what they say. Uh, you know, what really makes us tick? I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And it's totally interesting to me as well. I mean, I think there's there's sort of the ADHD, there's the abundance of focus, and then there's there's having too much focus and there's not having enough focus, right? And then, but there's sort of two sides of the same coin in a way. They are. And I think you also see that, you know, a lot of times it's the procrastinator too. And I love the topic of procrastination. There are some great podcasts out there, other ones to listen to just our TED Talks and things just on this because I find myself procrastinating, but then I do my best work, not if you put it off too long. And I heard one guy talking about how it's it's really just because you're figuring it all out. You're not just putting it off. You're preparing and your mind is getting everything in order and you're not going to do it until you're fully prepared to do it. And then again, don't push it off too late. But then when you execute, you're going to execute at the best of your ability in that time. So there's, you know, I think there's really something to that. Yeah. And to me, it just, it, it just begs the, um, it begs the conversation that we should all be having more of about neural diversity. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. And we sort of slap these labels onto procrastination and having too much energy, having not enough energy. And often, you know, medications come along with diagnosis. And I mean, this is a separate conversation, a separate podcast, but. I've seen that, you know, my brothers had ADHD and I saw them go through the process of the medications and seeing how things affected them. And I see also where they have these strengths and their ability to learn in different ways. And I feel like schools, I'm, of course, I'm passionate about schools right now. I'm, uh, you know, I'm working on becoming a professor myself at the moment. And I've got two kids that are getting into the school systems. And with COVID going on and all these kids stuck at home, there's going to be a, a lot of need for us to get in and teach these kids in a way that they can receive and learn. And it's hard to do online. I know these teachers are working their butts off to make it happen. I like thank you to all of the teachers out there for your dedication. Because when we were growing up, it's like you either fit in the box of how you learned or you didn't. And I really believe that they're getting better now about having a little flexibility and being able to focus on the individual needs of kids and how they best learn. We all learn different. Yeah, that would be a wish for our the world that our children grow up in is that there's there is more room for that diversity and and that then every individual can really become the best version of themselves within that context without the labels. And to be able to love that learning too. I mean, I I was a kid, I had to stand up. I couldn't sit still. I'd get tired, I'd get bored, I'd start doodling or I'd just go skip class and go climb because I I wasn't keeping my attention. I in college, I always stood in the back of the classroom so that I'd stay focused because I wanted to learn. But if I sat my butt down in a chair, I was going to have my mind wander. That's just how I was. Yeah. And how has how has COVID changed you? I, In a way, I almost felt when COVID happened that I had been preparing for it just the way it's changed our lives for the last few years because I had already hit that pause button to have my kids. My son was born in November. My last trip as this was all starting was to take him with me on our first 
mom's son trip to go qualify for the women's skydive world record out in Eloy and jump with my girlfriends out there. And it was so much fun. And I felt like, okay, I'm really ready to get going. Apply. I was applying to an airline. We were going to possibly move back up to Alaska full time. And I was just ready to, to kind of take that step. And so with COVID for me, I just had to, I just had to stop. You know, we decided to stay. We were able to refinance our house so that we could stay in Florida. I still went to Alaska with my kids, but instead of working, I was just hanging out with them and our family and doing a lot of hiking, a lot of playing outside. And it's really given me this time to focus on my children. The financial stress is tough. I think we're all, you know, everyone can relate to just happy to pay your bills each month and really ready to kind of get back out there. But I believe it has been the ultimate test of patience for me and probably for the planet. Yeah, seriously. Patience and then figuring out a way to come together. Yes. And be creative. Think outside the box. We're all having to do that. I I look at the kids in college and I think about when I was in college and we had just gone through 9-11 and as someone in aviation, we had to think outside the box and follow a non-traditional route and be creative and take opportunities. And the kids right before this all hit had a, I mean, they, aviation was booming. I mean, just pick your job and go for it mm-hmm. and just kind of pick which contract and bonus sounded the best. And that's not the situation now. We've done this before. Aviation always bounces back and it will again, but it might just force this generation of students to, again, be creative, think outside the box. And I don't know, we might have a bunch more glacier pilots and firefighting pilots and missionary pilots and aerobatic pilots coming out of this mix like we did, uh, and military pilots like we did back, uh, you know, back when I got out of college. (laughs) Because there won't be the demand in the airlines. That's it, you know, and sometimes it's fun to have to get creative and, and be challenged. Sometimes everything has to be broken down for it to be built back up better and stronger and and for us to get that shift in perspective that that sometimes we need. Yeah, seriously. What have been some of the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome in balancing your passion for flying and your family and your career? We know we've talked about some of them, but what has helped you overcome those challenges? I think one of the biggest challenges for me was, you know, because of the type of flying I do, it's all contract work. So when I stopped, it meant my paycheck stopped and uh, that was hard. My husband had, to, he was a glacier pilot up in Alaska. So he had to change careers into fire aviation. We had to relocate full-time. We were back and forth to Florida and Alaska. I still take the kids up to Alaska in the summer. We love it, but we had to make the decision to be full-time in Florida so that he would be able to go, you know, go to work and, uh, and still be able to see the kids sometimes. Because <laughs> when they're on the road, those firefighters, they're gone three, four months at a time. Yeah. So I think that having to make some big decisions on where we lived, on what we did for work or didn't do, were some of our the biggest challenges for me. And really, I not traveling has been hard. I have not spent this much time in one place and in one country. You know, it's also made me go, okay, I, I really need to appreciate the place that I live and you know, all of the things and all of the access and all of the diversity that I have at my fingertips, not being able to cross borders. And really, I, I feel pretty lucky. I, I take my kids to Alaska in the summer and back to Florida in the winter. And I go, wow, we we get to spend our time in some pretty amazing spots. 
for not even leaving the country. Yeah, and th- those are two really extremely different places too, aren't they? Extremely different. Yeah, my husband loves to surf and I love to be in the mountains. So it's a good balance. It is a good balance. And you live in an air park down there in Florida, don't you? We do live on an air park. Um, one of the big things that I've had to do is uh, start finding ways to make money being at home. And I should put this out there because burnsbarnstormers.com, you'll have to share. We officially got our letter of agreement from the FAA this week and started our rides business. Um, we got Conk One, which is a Waco. It's, you know, it's a 1940s biplane that my friends ran out of Key West forever. Thousands of people have had taken flights in this airplane. And now we're going to do it right out of our backyard at Massey Air Ranch. And we'll be able to you know, I'll be able to work at home when the kids are at school. I can go hop rides. Uh, when Trent's home from work, he can go hop rides. And it's giving us the ability to, for me, to be a full-time parent, but also still get back to work. So that aircraft is just in your garage right now? It is. It's out in the hangar. I just I just go out and sit in it and smell it and pet it. And it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I think we're going to have to get into the home stretch here. I want to ask you just a few more questions, though, sort of looking deeper into kind of what makes you tick and and some reflections you have. What is influencing you right now as far as books, uh, authors that have been particularly compelling? Yeah, no, I would uh, love to share some. I'm going to share one that it's cool because you can actually get it on Audible, but it's got workbook with it. It was a class I took through Embry-Riddle that recommended this book. And I I enjoyed the journey and the experience of going through the exercises so much as a leader for all of us. I mean, we're all leaders in a way, right? And we can all learn to be better leaders, but it's called Resonant Leadership. And the workbook is called Becoming a Resonant Leader. If you want something to go through and just, I mean, take yourself through the exercises, I learned so much. I've had a lot of classes I've enjoyed, but I feel like I took more away from that leadership class than just about any other class I've taken. Huh. Yeah. And then um, I've been listening. I listen to running books all the time. I've been getting into the listening to climbing books more. And I love climbing. I was so passionate about it. The base jumping was my way to stay involved in the world of climbers. But sometimes I I have a hard time. Like I don't want to watch the videos and listen to the books because it makes me miss it and kind of wish that I had gotten to do more of it. And I can't right now. So finally, I said, okay, I need to start. I'm going to start listening to them. And now I just can't stop. So there's, you know, a few great ones out there I've listened to lately. Alone on the Wall, the book by Alex Honnold was mind-blowing. I mean, just the free solo, up El Cap, up Free Rider. You just have to read it. The Push by Tommy Caldwell was another great one. Tommy's a climber I always looked up to. I also really love that they they all reference Dean Potter at, at points and times, and he was a huge influence to me, a good friend. We did a lot of wingsuit base jumping together, which sadly ultimately took his life. But it's just so it's so fun to hear stories about about your friends that you know, especially ones that aren't here anymore, and and hear the influences they had, and hear stories that you haven't heard before, and to be able to continue to be inspired by them. If you're a runner, a female runner, the book Roar R O A R, I highly recommend. She goes into your your hormonal cycles, your nutrition, training. It's it's great. Yeah. So those are a few. Awesome. Yeah. I can give you a bunch more, but I'll stop. Oh, one more, one more. For parents, this one was so fun. The audiobook. I know none of us can actually read books when we have babies. Someone gave me this book, Bringing Up Bebe, 
I never read it. I finally got the audiobook. It's about a mom married to a Brit raising a baby in France. It is hilarious and also just so good. So many good takeaways. I will second that. I'll second the ones that I know about that you mentioned. I I will second that one and also the roar, which is great for runners. Yes. So good. Definitely. That's the Melissa book list for now. (laughs) I love it. With book club, I'm joining it. Yes. So this is a podcast where we celebrate the spirit of taking on challenges and reaching beyond predetermined heights. And we use the metaphor of flight. For you, it's a symbol, but it's obviously a pursuit as well. Can you leave us with a closing thought about your passion to fly and pursuing that passion? I would. Um, I would just like to say, you know, I, I always give this shout out at my air shows, but I really, truly mean it. And it's just to chase your dreams and know that anything is possible. This is this life is all about the journey. We can set goals. The goals are not the things that matter. It's the places that they take us. So don't get stuck. Don't be afraid to set goals for yourself and to take steps forward. Uh, Just go out there and chase those dreams and you will love where they take you. Now check out sportsgal.com. No, sorry. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, how can we find out more about you and your projects and all of your energy that is out there for us? Yes, okay. So websites, you can check out sportsgal.com and that is uh, basically my athlete portfolio. Burnsbarnstormers.com is where you can check out what we're doing business-wise. That's where if I've got air shows going on, I'll put them there. If you want to come get a walkover ride with me, please do come fly with me. Send your friends to fly with me if you're here in Central Florida. Uh, check out burnsbarnstormers.com and on Instagram at Melissa Sports Gal or follow Melissa Burns, my athlete profile on Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much. And do you have, as you're talking about all, you've, we've talked for over an hour and you've mentioned so many different places. I just wonder, do you have a specific place that you consider home that feels like home when you return? Oh, so many. One of the blessings of all the travel I've done is so many places. It's the people. I'll tell you that. It's the people and the places that I go that make me feel at home. You know, in particular, I feel like certain shows I've done, My our, our air show family in Central America has been so special. Every time, you know, it's hard work to get there. Every time I get there, I instantly feel home. Same with certain places that I go in Europe and just, you know, you get there. I, I like the Aero Club it, that they, where they put the Santa Clara show on in Belgium. I can walk in there and just take a deep breath and instantly feel like I've, like I've been there forever. And then I'm pretty stoked I'm married to a guy from Alaska because for some reason, there's something about the state of Alaska over the years. Every time I've gone, the first time I flew myself there was on my birthday going up for the Elmendorf Air Force Base Air Show. And I said, I want the day of my birthday to be the day that I fly the highway into Alaska. And if I had any idea what that state held for me in my future, I, I don't think I would have believed it. But it has always been a place, even from the first time I went there, that made me feel home. Just the, the culture of people helping each other out, looking out for one another, as you have to in a place with such a harsh environment. So for a girl that's chased summers, I really love the cold state of Alaska. <laughs> it's a really interesting testament to the power of place and the fact that home can be really what we make it, right? And I think what you said about the people is really important. The people and the culture and the environment is part of that. You know what? And I think anyone who lives on the road, some people are total homebodies or they're like, I couldn't do it. 
you talk to anyone that lives on the road the way that I have and so many people have, we look like a bunch of gypsies. But if people could see how at home we get to be in so many different places, it is and it's just such a blessing. And it is something that is worth all of the travel to have so many places that you can feel our home and people that you can feel our family. Final question. Do you have any advice for women, women in the field that you are in or women who are taking action in their life? I do. And this is advice I wish I could give to myself when I was getting into aviation. Um, I think that as women, we usually feel put a lot of pressure on ourselves. Like we have to perform better. We have to, you know, stand out in the right ways like we talked about before. But, you know, I I just want to encourage you two things. One, don't listen to what other people have to say about you. Shut out the noise. It's about them. It's not about you. And second, your self-talk. Give yourself all the positive self-talk that you can. Uh, We're our own biggest critic. We can be our own biggest enemy. So do yourself a favor and keep that positive. You know, be love yourself. Okay. (laughs) It'll, it'll take you places. Thank you, Melissa. This has been really fun conversation and you've left a lot of nuggets for us to digest. Thanks a lot. Of course. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to the When Women Fly podcast. My hope is that you leave this conversation with a sense of curiosity and empowerment to hold on to what is important and let go to what weighs you down. Stare fear in the face. If you like this episode of the When Women Fly podcast, be sure to share and subscribe and let us know what you think. We love feedback. Be brave, be bold, and fly. See you next time.